Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, who it serves, who it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society. I'm Russ Feingold, the president of the American Constitution Society and your host for this episode. I am honored to be joined today by Congressman and House Majority Whip James E. Clyburn for a discussion on the state of our democracy, including the continued impact of the devastating 2010 Supreme Court decision in Citizens United versus the FCC. Of course, the Congressman needs no introductions, but I do want to highlight that he is serving his 15th term in the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 6th District of South Carolina. He is the highest ranking African-American in Congress and is serving his second stint as House Majority Whip. But before his service in Congress, he was a civil rights leader from a young age. He and John Lewis met as college students and were founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. And maybe perhaps most noteworthy right now, it's hard to talk about Congressman Clyburn without recognizing his role in helping to elect President Joe Biden with his critical endorsement in February of 2020, ahead of the South Carolina primary. Jim, uh, you and I both remember the books, The Making of a President, starting in 1960. I guarantee you there's going to be a major chapter in any book written about uh, 2020. Congratulations. Jim, it's (laughs) it's great to be with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on Broken Law. I'm excited to have this opportunity to discuss democracy with you, specifically our democratic legitimacy as a country, from money in politics to the rights packing of the Supreme Court to the threat on voting rights. I'm deeply concerned about our democratic legitimacy as a country. If it's okay with you, Jim, let's start with a subject you might not be surprised to hear me mention, campaign finance reform, or the lack (laughs) thereof, since the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United versus the FCC. For listeners not familiar with this case, the Supreme Court in 2010 Citizens United case ruled it unconstitutional to impose any limits on the amount of money that corporations could spend on elections, claiming that corporations were people and that money is speech, which meant limits on campaign contributions violated the First Amendment. It is that decision, at least in my view, that really unleashed corporate spending on elections and skyrocketed the amount of money spent on elections every cycle. Now, for years, Jim, I've described this as one of the top five worst decisions in the history of the Supreme Court, but you did it much more effectively and pointedly when you described Citizens United as the worst Supreme Court decision since Dred Scott. Why do you describe it this way, Jim? Uh, Senator, thank you very much for having me with you today. And I really, really appreciate the tremendous work you did in the Congress, most especially this particular case, to join in the bipartisan way with John McCain to get this done and then to have it undone by such an egregious Supreme Court decision. It was just a bit much for me to take. Now, I said it what I did about it, because remember, Dred Scott was all about the law as it was at the time, a man who had escaped from slavery and had gotten into freedom. And it was, he was supposed to be a a free person for whatever reason. But when his case was decided that he had returned to slavery, it is what Judge Tenney, whatever his name was from Maryland, said no black man has any rights that a white man uh, must recognize. That 
to me was egregious. Here we come with a case involving finance and campaigns. And you guys had done a tremendous job, I thought, with McCain Fine Gold. That's not the official name I know, but we all call it that. <laughs> uh, you done a tremendous job. But then the Supreme Court looked at it and says, no, wait a minute. Money is a form of speech and it's central to campaigns. And that speech is important, even if it's a corporation doing the speaking. So that put corporations as human beings, as people, that to me was just egregious. It's just bad as a Dred Scott decision to me. I've said that a few people take issue with it, but I'm still not changing that. I think it was the worst since Dred Scott. That's a powerful statement. You think about Exxon being treated as a person and Dred Scott not being treated as a person. That pretty much says says it all. You know, in addition to that horrible situation in terms of the law, it was a bad decision on the law. You know, as well as anybody, that Citizens United is made, from a practical point of view, running for office that much more expensive, meaning that, you know, political office is more attainable for folks who are independently wealthy or have wealthy networks, or maybe it's better to say it in reverse, Jim. It makes running for office really difficult for people who are not independently wealthy or might not have a wealthy Rolodex that has this disproportionate impact on people of color. Absolutely. Just, just think about this. You know, President Biden said something I think was in his Tulsa speech on Tuesday. I was in Tulsa on Sunday, but I left before the president got there. I think he said in the speech that home ownership for blacks in this country today is less than what it was uh, when we passed the Fair Housing Law. Now, the Fair Housing Law was passed in 1968. And for us to say that the primary source of wealth in the black community, the primary source is not the only one, but the primary source of wealth and the most extensive, I can say, has been home ownership over the years. Right. And all of a sudden now, we are worst off with home ownership 50 years after the fair housing law was passed. It tells you something. And that would, if you just look at the Supreme Court decision, it would say that wealth that we have lost, the wealth gap that exists in this country, can be equated to what we will call, you could very well say, the gap between your know, citizenship rights as a voting part of the public. It's just an egregious way to really determine the existence of anyone or a group of people. Yeah, it's a sad commentary. Not only does it have a terrible realization of what the situation is now, but it goes all the way back to the original sin of our Constitution, our founding failures, and, of course, things like Dred Scott and others that have a long-lasting effect. So, of course, Citizen United, as we've said, has this disproportionate impact on people of color. Citizens United has fundamentally changed our elections, but... It's particularly changed elections for candidates of color. And in in terms of the legitimacy of our democracy, I'll bet you would link what I would link, which is not only Citizens United, but also Shelby County. It was a lethal combination. It was Citizens United unleashing the floodgates of dark money and the terrible decision in Shelby County restricting access to the polls. For our listeners, Jim, could you just talk about Shelby County versus Holder? Shelby County versus Holder. Shelby, it's Alabama. Shelby County, Alabama versus Eric Holder, who at the time was the Attorney General. Uh, That decision was about nine years old. So if you think about it, Citizens United 
decided a little over 11 years ago. And that case did what we just talked about. And then you follow that two years later, and you uh, say, okay, the protections of the 1965 Voting Rights Act are now outdated. That Voting Rights Act went into place in August 6, 1965. And this decision by the Supreme Court came just a few months after the Congress had nearly unanimously reauthorized the Voting Rights Act and did it in a bipartisan way. When you said nearly unanimous, even if you get down to the office of John Lewis on one side with Bobby Scott, and in fact, from Wisconsin. And Jim uh, Sensenbrenner. Sensenbrenner. Yes, they wrote that. And Sensenbrenner was exercised over that decision. So this is not a partisan thing here. And all of a sudden now, that's no longer operative. And, 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 and what was so bad about it, we had done within months of what Justice Roberts said we needed to do in order to make it current. We had just made it current, and we've never been able. Sensenbrenner and Bobby Scott worked very hard, along with several others of us. They met in my conference, in my office, really, there in the Canon office building on a weekly basis and hammered out an agreement. Now, what the court did, and I think the listeners need to know what this is all about, it didn't get rid of the Voting Rights Act. But a significant part of the Voting Rights Act has to do with so-called pre-clearance. That's in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, pre-clearance simply says that any state that has a history that's covered by the Act, and you have to have a history of having discriminated against voters, like they did in Alabama when John Lewis walked across the Evan Pettus Bridge back in March of 1965, less than 2% of the African Americans in Alabama were registered to vote. And African-Americans at that time constituted around 35, 36% north of that, I think, uh, in Alabama. But only 2% of them were registered to vote. So this says, if you've got that kind of a history and you make any kind of change to your law, you got to submit that to the Justice Department. The Justice Department would then do some analysis to determine whether or not this was fair or whether or not it has the effect of us suppressing the vote. However, in Section 4 of the law, it was the formula there that you have to go by. So he threw the formula out. So when the formula got thrown out, that means Section 5 is really neutered. And that's, so that's, that's where we are today. That is such a critical distinction. There was a very glib opinion there. And the full that's implications right. of it came later. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Congressman Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin. You know, Jim, the congressman and I, I was a pain in the neck to him, and he was a pain in the neck to me most of the time. He wasn't a moderate Republican. He's a very conservative Republican, but he was Absolutely. principled. He was principled on this. And Absolutely. so you're making a critical point that just about 10 years ago, we still had an attitude about voting rights in this country that was it shouldn't be partisan, that it should be sacred. And right. Congressman Sensenbrenner understood that. And, you know, it was just a few months after Shelby County, as you pointed out, that we started to see the revival of Jim Crow-like suppression techniques. So sometimes people talk about the filibusters having a legacy of Jim Crow and the like. Well, what I like to say is we've got Jim Crow now. We've got Jim Crow on steroids coming out of this thing. Absolutely. You mentioned that for those pursuing voter suppression, this is a quote from you, the aims and objectives are still the same. They're just coming up with new methods. So let me ask you a forward-looking question on this. You've referenced that one of the strengths of American democracy is its ability to repair its faults. 
Do you think it's possible with this decision, with this Supreme Court, to repair these faults? I think so. You know, I think this uh, Supreme Court, Justice Roberts has surprised a few people, including me, every now and then with his decisions. Uh, one was the, uh, his opinion uh, on the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act was hanging in the balance, and a lot of people got upset uh, with him because he found it to be constitutional. Though he found the Constitution on different grounds than I thought he would, which in fact put things like Medicaid at peril, because it gave the state some authority to do or not do some things that I thought they should not be able to do in South Carolina, took a signal from the Chief Justice, and uh, and we still don't have Medicaid expansion in South Carolina and several other states as well. But uh, I think Roberts saw the need there. Now, Roberts said in his opinion that you all need to uh, uh, update this formula. So we took that opinion. And last Congress, Marshall Fudge went around the country, developed a record, and we submitted it. It passed the House of Representatives, but it could not get to the Senate. We have undertaken to update that. And G.K. Butterfield, a a former Supreme Court Justice from North Carolina, now serving in the Congress, he is conducting the hearings that are necessary to develop a new record. So we're taking Justice Roberts at his word. Well, that's a wonderful approach, uh, Jim, because, you know, he could surprise us again. The fact is he's been very bad on the issue of voting rights, uh, even though he's done some other good things. But maybe I think he is concerned about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court facilitates the destruction of voting rights in this country anymore, I think it could hurt the court as well as uh, the people in this country. If you're enjoying the content you're hearing in Broken Law, join the American Constitution Society today. We are a diverse nationwide network of progressive lawyers, students, judges, elected officials, voters, and advocates. Together, we work to ensure that the law is a force for protecting the public interest and for improving the lives of all people. With exclusive access to members-only networking events and panels and discussions with progressive leaders, ACS is where it's at for progressives. Become a member today at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. Let me switch to the courts themselves, if I could, because it's so important to both of us. Our system of government is built so that our courts act as a safeguard against these attacks on our democracy and our civil rights. But many of us have less and less faith in our judiciary right now after years of the right packing our courts with primarily white male ideologues who are put there not to be really fair-minded, but to push the judiciary as far as they possibly can to the far right. What's your view of the state of our federal judiciary right now? I'm very concerned about the federal judiciary. I'm not concerned about conservatism as much as I am about incompetence. So many of the people that have been put on the federal bench recently do not have the competence that I think that are necessary to sit in a court, at least more federal court. I mean, some of these people, when you look at, some of them never even been in the courtroom, and now we're making them federal judges. It's almost as if so long you had a, a certain idea or if you're an ideologue of a certain persuasion, that's all you, the qualifications you need. And there have been people that the uh, independent bar association has looked at and says unqualified 
and they're put on the court anyway. So that bothers me more than anything else. You know, I, I don't have a problem with conservatism. You know, I often joke that my dad was very conservative. Uh, he was a minister. He used to teach us that conserving was just almost religious. When you leave a room, you turn out the light. Uh, <laughs> if you make a dollar, you ought to be able to conserve at least a nickel. But he never asked his congregations on Sunday morning to give conservatively. He always asked for a liberal offering. <laughs> and so I so I believe that there's a, the combination of liberalism and conservatism can be a good and a good balance. But radicalism is what is overtaking the process today. Not conservatism, but radicalism. And that's what's going on with a lot of these appointments to the federal bench and a lot of people who get elected to office. You know, you see examples of that almost daily on the evening news of what's going on down there with a couple of candidates who happen to be women. One from Colorado, one from Georgia. We're showing us what radicalism is all about. Yeah, the juxtaposition of the lack of competence and the radicalism is a great point. And, you know, nothing is more important to us at the American Constitution Society than this concern about the judiciary. And we've been speaking out at length about the credibility of our whole judiciary being in peril, in part because of the lack of diversity on the bench, which, of course, got even much worse under the last administration. So how do we restore the credibility of our judiciary? Well, I think that uh, Joe Biden has made a very good start. He is looking at a diversity of backgrounds and experiences, and I emphasize experiences, but I think uh, it's very important. I, I think that we've seen on one side of the equation ideologues being appointed, but we have to be careful on the other side of the equation that we don't come up with an elite court. Uh, people are now beginning to look at the fact that uh, when you got nine people in the court and what, some of them went to, uh, to two schools only? Uh, that uh, indicates to me that, that you could very well be creating an elitist court. So I've said to, to President Biden and his folks that diversity of experiences are just as important, in my opinion, as gender and ethnicity and uh, to include race and ethnicity. Yeah, we see those two points about diversity as being the twin engines of what we're doing. We feel that the courts need to reflect the public they serve. There's a big push to recruit candidates of color to run for office, but also people who you know have represented unions or community people. So yeah. I, I think, and I know you do, we need to be equally committed to increasing diversity on the bench. Jim, I just want to ask you about one more thing, because we're so lucky sure. to have you on this show and you're much in demand. And that's that's something you don't have to deal with in the House, but something you sure know about, the filibuster. One way to address uh, some of these concerns is, as you've already pointed out, is with federal legislation. You were pointing that out with regard to the voting rights issue. On that, I'd like to get your thoughts about something I've been thinking about a lot lately, including the filibuster's impact on our democratic legitimacy. And, and that's this filibuster. I, you know, I know a little something about the filibuster. Sometimes I kid around I was a trained filibusterer because I was in the Senate. Uh, I even did a few mild ones. I did one on half of the Wisconsin dairy farmers when those darn Vermont senators were trying to change the, the pricing system. But mm -hmm. I've come to believe that we fundamentally need meaningful reform of the filibuster, if not eliminating. I know it's a Senate rule, not a House rule, but it has such a huge impact on the critical work you're trying to originate in the House. What are your current views on the filibuster, Jim? Well, you know, it's had not just an impact on me in the House, it had an impact on me long, long, long time before I became to the House. I graduated high school in 1957. 
tell you a little bit about me, how old I am. 1957, something else happened, and that was Strom Thurmond. J. Strom Thurmond set the filibuster record in 1957, and you know he was filibustering a civil rights legislation. It wasn't a 1964 Civil Rights Act or the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It was just an expression of fairness and equality in an act that had absolutely no teeth. He set the filibuster record doing that. Now, back then, that was a remarkable thing because it was over 25 hours he was standing on the floor, which is what you had to do back then. Now, we've changed these so-called filibuster rules. Now, a person could sit in a spa somewhere. <laughs> uh, and, and, t- and have a filibuster take place on the floor of the Senate. So what we've done, I know you remember this, you've lowered the two-thirds of what, 66 and, well, 67, because you can't cut a person in one-third or two-thirds, so uh, 67 votes to stop it. We dropped, they lowered the threshold of 60 votes, but at the same time, we made these other changes. And now with the system we have now with the internet and everything else, filibusters have gotten out of control. And it seems to me, I'm not against the filibuster. I am against what is being filibustered. So it needs to be reformed. We reformed the filibuster by dropping the number. And we also uh, figured out a way not to have budgets filibustered. We call it reconciliation. Well, to me, the word reconciliation would be much better applied to constitutional issues like voting than to the budget. So if you can have reconciliation for the budget, you can have reconciliation for voting and other constitutional issues. And so it's one thing to extend debate on a piece of legislation dealing with whatever. It can be the pricing of milk or anything else. But when you say you can sit in a spa somewhere and stop me from voting, that is a constitutional right that ought not be subjected to filibusters. And that, to me, cries out for reform. It does. And I think you stated it very reasonably. You could be demanding a complete elimination, but you're just making common sense here. You you stated that, quote, constitutional issues should never be sacrificed on the altar of the filibuster. In fact, the new senator from uh, Georgia, Reverend Warnock, said, you know, how how does it work that you have the the rights of the minority protected in the floor of the Senate, but not the rights of the minority uh, around the country? That doesn't make any sense. And some of the most important bills of our time are ones you've gotten through the House who may be killed by the filibuster, the voting rights bill, the civil rights issues, and frankly, the the refusal to have a commission on the January 6th insurrection. So I take it you would support creating exceptions to the filibuster for for issues like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, and I've made that known to a few senators, including Joe Manchin, that I am not saying that you got to get rid of the filibuster. I'm saying you got to reform the filibuster. Because, you know, I've studied the history of the filibuster, and I know why it was put into place. I mean, it's never been in real law. It's a practice that grew up, and it was all about extending debate, not about eliminating or denying constitutional rights. Yeah, the filibuster isn't mentioned in the Constitution. It's not constitutional protected. No. I don't recognize the filibuster today from when I was there. This thing you described, some people call it the silent filibuster, or maybe we'll call it the spa filibuster after your <laughs> example, uh, is antithetical to a chamber designed for great debate and be ruled by a simple majority. So as a student of history, you know the filibuster's ability today to enforce the will of minority upon the majority is in direct conflict 
with the founders' efforts to apply lessons learned from the Articles of Confederation to the new Constitution. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to have you on so early. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate being here. Be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And help us reach more folks by sharing this podcast with your friends. If you believe in the progressive movement, become a member of the American Constitution Society today at acslaw.org. There you can also find details and show notes about today's episode. And, of course, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law who it really serves, and who it does not.